following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, it's my honor this morning to invite you to open up God's word with me to the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here we are on Sunday, December 11th, 2022. Two weeks away from Christmas and three weeks away from 2023. And if you're an adult this morning or a parent, you're probably thinking, where has the time gone? Christmas, two weeks away. And if you're a child, you're thinking, it's about time Christmas is here. It's been an eternity since the last Christmas. For some, Christmas is a very joyful season. It's a happy time. For others, it's very painful. Perhaps a past memory has embittered this season for you. Some Christians would be content to wipe December off the map, off the calendar, and have the new year begin after Thanksgiving. They are disgusted by the materialism of the season, and they're convinced that everything about Christmas is pagan and satanic and demonic, and they want nothing to do with it. And then there's others who look around and they see Christmas lights and Christmas trees and Christmas presents and Christmas parties and they tell themselves, it is what it is. And if the world's going to do this every year, why not take the time to redeem the time to think deeply about the incarnation and birth of God's Son into this world and how he came to rescue and redeem and reconcile ruined sinners to himself. Let me just say that you don't have to get sucked into the materialism or the covetousness that so many are consumed with during this time of the year. And at the other end of the spectrum, you don't have to be given over to bitterness in this season. You can feed the fires of worship with the kindling of thoughtful consideration of one of the greatest miracles that God has ever performed. I don't know about you, but deep Thinking about the incarnation of Christ is just as impactful and ravishing to my heart as when I think about his suffering and his death. And I think maybe that changed once I became a father and got to hold a newborn and watch him go from rolling to walking to running to riding a bike and now being able to have deep talks about reality with him. To think of the eternal Son of God humbling himself, entering time, taking upon himself a human nature, 
being born as a helpless infant to a virgin mother and her husband, experiencing the fullness of infancy and childhood and teenage years, and all for the purpose of one day taking upon himself my sin and my guilt and my shame as he would offer up his life as a sacrifice to be consumed by the wrath and justice of God that I deserve, the sheer mercy and grace of it all hits you and makes you love him and long to be with him all the more. Well, this morning, no matter where you stand with regard to Christmas I'm not here to talk about presents or Santa Claus or reindeer or eggnog or the supposed magic that many believe comes with this Christmas season. I'm here as an unworthy messenger to direct the eyes of your heart to the one through whom and for whom all things were created. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. One of the reasons I love December is it gives me, as an expository preacher, the excuse to point you to yet another aspect of his glory, namely his glorious incarnation and birth into this fallen, broken world. As we open our Bibles, along with our hearts and our minds, it's my earnest hope that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to behold the beauty and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in beholding him with the eyes of faith, that the Spirit of Christ would transform us from one degree of glory to another. Well, as we sit this morning before the spiritual feast of God's word, may we obey the command of Psalm 37, 4, which says, Delight yourself. In the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I trust that if you're truly in Christ and have been made alive by the Spirit of God, your deepest desire is summed up in the words of Psalm 27 4, where David says, One thing have I desired of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty, or in the Hebrew, the pleasantness of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. That's an Old Testament way of just saying just to hang out in his temple and be with him. Let's remember that as Psalm 1611 says, he makes known to us the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, regarding the incarnation of God the Son, one author wrote, it is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. 
We are talking this morning about the miracle of all miracles, the greatest of all of God's works. The word incarnation means being or becoming in flesh. It comes from two Latin words, en, which means in, and carne, or it's a form of caro, which means flesh. Thus, when we speak of the incarnation of God the Son, we are referring to what the Apostle John writes in the opening pages of his gospel testimony. The Word, who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who himself was God, this Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. God was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3, 16. The invisible, untouchable God became visible and touchable. The infinite became finite. The transcendent God descended and drew near to humanity. Eternity penetrated time. The second person of the Trinity becomes what he wasn't, human, while never ceasing to be what he was, God. In the majestic person of Jesus, the fullness of deity is permanently united with humanity, real humanity. John Murray rightly said, the thought of the incarnation is stupendous. For it means the conjunction in one person of all that belongs to Godhead and all that belongs to manhood. It's no wonder Herman Bavink said when referring to the incarnation, this mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. And he goes on to talk about how mystery is not the same as contradiction. We marvel And we worship because of the mystery of the incarnation. In talking about the miracle of the incarnation, we are talking about the apex of God's wisdom, the apex of God's power, the apex of God's goodness. You know, the ancient Romans worshipped the Caesar, a man who would supposedly become a god. But Christians then and Christians now worship the God of heaven who became a man while never ceasing to be God. What makes the Christmas season shine with the incomparable luster with which it shines isn't so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of Almighty God. The heart of God residing within an infant's chest. Have you ever thought about that? The heart of Almighty God confined to a little body, a little chest with little ribs. That's the incarnation. Solomon confessed in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. And yet in the incarnation, we see him contained within the womb of a young virgin. This is the one who made the sea and the one for whom the rivers clap their hands. And yet, in his incarnation, we see him floating around in the amniotic fluid of his mother. 
the one whose majestic voice spoke the universe into existence, cooing and crying as a helpless baby, the word of God unable to speak a word. This is the one whose great power and outstretched arm made the earth with the man and animals that are on it, Jeremiah 27.5, now stretching out his tiny arms towards the woman whom he himself formed and knitted together in her mother's womb. It's a mystery that fuels the flames of our worship and our gratitude. Well, to help us think about the glory of Christ and his incarnation, we turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Just listen to these words and let them sink in. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let me read that again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This choice gem, which not only encapsulates the incarnation, but the very gospel itself, is found within the larger context of chapters 8 and 9 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And in this section, Paul is appealing to this repentant church to complete the final collection that they had begun earlier for the suffering church in Jerusalem. Note the beginning of chapter 8 with me. Paul highlights the example of the churches throughout Macedonia who overflowed with a wealth of generosity even in the midst of what Paul calls a severe test of affliction. They were quick to give whatever they could bring, whatever they could do. They were quick to bring whatever they could, to bring whatever relief they could to the believers in Jerusalem, verses 3 through 5. And then Paul, in verses 6 through 8, expresses his confidence that the church in Corinth will do the same in light of the grace that's been given to them. And then by way of motivation, by way of inspiration, he moves beyond the example of the gracious generosity of the believers in Macedonia to the supreme example of grace and generosity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in verse 9, which is our text today, is not only a motivation for generous giving that brings relief to fellow believers in need, what we have here in verse 9 is the very basis and motivation for all Christian conduct and ethical instruction. Pointing to the supreme and unparalleled example of generosity and grace, Paul says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Again, this not only summarizes the glory of the incarnation, but it captures the very heart of the gospel of our salvation. Christ, the Son of God, 
humbling himself in order to exalt his people. Christ being made low in order to raise us up. Christ becoming poor in order to enrich spiritually destitute, spiritually impoverished, spiritually bankrupt sinners like ourselves. Here in verse 9, the Apostle Paul directs the attention of his readers, then and now, to four particulars of our Savior's glory. Four particulars of our Savior's glory. Number one, the inherent grace of our Savior. Number two, the abounding richness of our Savior. Number three, the self-imposed poverty of our Savior. And number four, the gracious purpose of our Savior. And my goal this morning is to unpack and explore each of those strands of thought. So number one, let's consider the inherent grace of our Savior. I've entitled this message, Riches Flowing from Poverty. Riches Flowing from Poverty. Consider the inherent grace of our Savior. Paul begins by saying, For you know, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle, rightly assumes that if his readers have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, if they've been called into the fellowship of Christ Jesus, and are now new creations by virtue of their union with Christ, he assumes that they have a knowledge of his grace. A knowledge of his grace. Believers know it. They have been saved by it. They are being sanctified and strengthened by the grace of Christ. And one day, when this grace is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will be fully and finally glorified with him. The knowledge that every believer has of the grace of our Lord Jesus is a knowledge that has been given to them from above. Flesh and blood did not come to the knowledge of this grace on its own. The knowledge of the grace of Christ was revealed to us by our Father in heaven. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God gave us this knowledge. We didn't come to it on our own. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, by sovereign grace, has given us eyes to see this grace, minds to understand this grace, and hearts to savor this grace. And if you think you came to that on your own, you are mistaken. When it comes to salvation, knowledge isn't everything, but without it, we have nothing. We are saved by grace through faith. But this faith is rooted in a saving knowledge of our Savior's grace as it's revealed in the gospel. And I underscore that because we live in a day when so many Christians in our little subculture seem to be minimizing the importance of knowledge. We want to talk about experiencing God. We want to talk about encountering the supernatural. And I'm all for that. 
but never at the expense of truth, never at the expense of knowledge. We experience God by knowing God, and we encounter the supernatural by walking in the knowledge of the truth. You see, Paul here rightly assumes that genuine believers have a knowledge of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another interesting aspect of this verse is that Paul ascribes our salvation to the grace of Christ. He attributes salvation to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just because the Bible speaks more about the grace of God the Father being the source and spring of our salvation, we should never lose sight of the fact that our salvation is also rooted in the grace of God the Son. The grace of God the Son. Acts chapter 15, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Although there are just a couple of verses that explicitly attribute the work of our salvation to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are enough to warrant our eternal praise and gratitude. One of the things about the sufficiency of Scripture is that people when they don't grasp the reality of God's word as authoritative and sufficient, is they get in arguments over, well, there are more verses about this than there are about this. There are more verses about this than about that thing. But let me tell you, the sufficiency of Scripture leads us to believe that even if we have one verse about one glorious reality, that settles it. Because one word from an almighty God is worth more than all the words of finite man. Our hearts should find rest and refreshment, serenity and solace in the fact that grace is an essential attribute of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is an essential characteristic of him. That is, his grace is inherent. It's not something that came outside of him and he had to learn. It's not something that he had to learn or develop. It's not something that God the Father commanded him to cultivate. Grace is who he is. And just to be clear, when we talk about grace, we are talking about that which moves God to bestow favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of condemnation. As one author put it, grace stresses free generosity to someone to whom the giver owes nothing. That's what grace is. Free generosity to someone to whom the giver owes nothing. Grace is what moved our Lord Jesus to do nothing but give, give, give when he walked this earth. To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many when he had every right to take, take, and take. It was grace that moved him to give. So behold, and let your souls rest in the inherent, immutable, all-sufficient, all-satisfying grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul is about to describe how this grace took action. But before he does that, he directs our attention, secondly, to the abounding richness of our Savior. The abounding richness of our Savior. Notice the progression of verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Let's stop right there. Literally, all we have in this next portion of verse 9 are three words in the Greek. That being rich. Paul uses a present participle to underscore that our Lord Jesus never ceased to be rich. Our ESV here can be a little misleading here in that it says that though he was rich, though he was rich, when in the Greek is literally that being rich, being rich, present tense. You know, we sometimes hear people say that Christ forsook his riches in order to come and save us. But that's not true. That's not the teaching of the word of God. The scriptures teach us that he never once ceased to be rich. This is an amazing truth because as we follow him around in the gospels, as he goes from town to town and from person to person with nowhere to lay his head in the midst of all of that activity, he never ceased to be what he was as the owner and possessor of everything in the universe. Everything was his and is his. Yet no one knew it in that day because of how perfectly he humbled himself. Richness is defined as having wealth or great possessions. It's to be, quote, abundantly supplied with resources and means, end quote. Abundantly supplied with resources and means. Have you ever taken the time to consider and contemplate the richness of our Savior? To consider all that he possesses, one, internally, two, externally, and three, relationally? First, I want you to consider just for a moment what he possesses internally. Again, if richness means having wealth or great possessions or being abundantly supplied with resources and means, consider all that our Lord Jesus has and possesses internally, that is, how he is rich in himself. As God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he is fully and completely God. No less than the Father and the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in Him, speaking of the Son, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, He is the radiance, the outshining, the brilliance and brightness of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the invisible God seen. If richness is described in terms of possessions, consider the fact that he possesses in himself the very essence of God. He is rich 
in terms of his very essence as God the Son. But he is also rich in terms of the attributes that he possesses. The attributes that are his. He is eternal. Without beginning. Without end. Jesus was. He is. And he is to come. He is the first and he is the last. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He possesses the attribute of eternality. He is the Lord of glory. Glory is his. He is the radiance of God's glory. If there's any glory in this universe, it ultimately emanates in and through and from him. He radiates with the very glory of Almighty God. He possesses the attribute of holiness. He is holy, 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 unlike everything in his fallen creation and unlike everything in his beautiful pre-fallen creation. Nothing can compare to him. Supremely holy and other. Jesus Christ is immutable. He never changes. The skies will one day be rolled up like a scroll, Hebrews chapter 1 verse says, but he remains the same. He possesses the attribute of immutability. He is life itself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has all life in himself. He is the one who animates and gives life and sustains the life of every living thing in creation. If you see anything that's alive, it comes from his life. That's how intricately woven he is into his creation. By his life and sustenance, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wherever there's life, it comes from him. Apart from him, there's no life. There's just nothing but death. He is life itself. And tied to that is the attribute of self-existence or aseity, coming from nothing. He is self-existent. He depends on nothing outside of himself to exist. This building depends on the concrete foundation and walls and boards and, 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 and everything, electricity to, to be a building. We depend upon a heart. That heart depends upon God. Where our lungs depend upon air. That air comes from God. Everything around us is not self-existent. It's dependent, upheld by God. But Christ, completely self-existent. He is love. Pure love. He is mercy. Pure mercy. He is grace. He is truth. He is omnipotent. That means he has all power and his power knows no limitations. He is omnipresent. Yes, not just God the Father, not just God the Spirit, but God the Son is omnipresent so that he could say to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with all of his people on the four corners of the earth. God with us. He is omniscient. He knows all things past, all things present, all things future. Even all things that could have happened. Had these things been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. He knows all things that could have happened. 
He knows all things secret, all things hidden, which makes him the perfectly suitable judge to be able to judge the secrets of men on the last day. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Jesus Christ possesses the attribute of righteousness. He knows no sin, no shadow, no flaw, no iniquity. He is sovereign. He possesses the attribute of supreme sovereignty. The New Testament teaches us that he is the head of all rule and all authority. It's his. He is truth itself. We could go on and on, but these attributes that he possesses in himself make him unfathomably rich. Unfathomably rich. But he isn't just rich in the attributes he possesses. He's also rich in the titles that he possesses. The titles that are his. The titles that he can say, that's who I am. That's mine. He is, according to Joshua, the commander of Yahweh's army. He is the wonderful counselor. The mighty God. Everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the very wisdom of God. He is Emmanuel. He is the Lord of glory. He is, according to Isaiah 53, the arm of Yahweh. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Word of God. He is the great I Am. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the way. He is the author of life. He is the power of God. He is the head of the church. He is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the savior of the world. He is the founder of our salvation, Hebrews chapter 2. He is the source of eternal salvation. He is the almighty. He is the alpha and he is the omega. Jesus Christ is the first and he is the last. He is the faithful and true one. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the beginning and he is the end. Revelation twenty two thirteen. He is rich in himself. As God, as the possessor of all the attributes of God, as the possessor of all these titles that are given to him, he is rich. But he's also rich, secondly, not just in himself, but he's rich in terms of his relations. Who is he? You see, sometimes people are known to be rich based upon who they're connected to. You see, a, you see a kid at school and you know that that kid's rich because he's connected to his father, connected to his family, right? We all knew that rich kid in high school because of who he was connected to. At his baptism, the father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father spoke up again from the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. In Matthew chapter 11, we have this amazing, amazing saying of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think any of us on this earth can plumb the depths of it. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. You see, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that no one knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. Right? For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? And also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So we see this trinity. We see that the Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. And according to Paul here, the Spirit knows God fully and thoroughly and comprehensively. And compared to the way the Father knows the Son, none of us know Him. And compared to the way the Son knows the Father, none of us know the Father. We're given a little glimpse. We see through a glass dimly. We don't know. We have, we have no idea. It's no wonder that we will spend eternity chasing him down. Eternity, having our minds filled and renewed with knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and growing as we are with him. Compared to the knowledge the Son has of the Father, no one knows God. And we're told in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He can make him known because he knows him. He knows the Father. So he is rich because of his relations as the second person of the Trinity. And thirdly, he's not just rich internally. He's not just rich relationally, but he is rich externally by what he possesses outside of himself. And what is that? Everything. Everything. The world and all that is in it belongs to Christ. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that everything was made by him and for him. He created it. He owns it. That's everything. That, that just sums up everything. There's, not, you, you can't, there's no sense in breaking down what in, what's in the world. Everything was created through him and for him. Humanity is his. The birds are his. The rivers and the hills are his. The angels, innumerable angels, are his. That's why he's called the captain of the Lord's army. He is the Lord of hosts. They are his. They do his bidding. They wait on him. Heaven is his. And hell is his. The new Jerusalem is his, and the lake of fire is his. Everything that exists belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is infinitely rich in, his, in himself, in his relations, and in what he possesses externally. All authority is his. Everything is his. If you think of anything, let me know. It's not, if you think of anything that may not be his, let me know. He's the creator and the possessor of everything. Infinitely rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that being rich, rich internally, relationally, and externally, far more than we can even 
fathom or imagine. And yet look at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in action as we move to the third aspect of his glory, the self-imposed poverty of our Savior. The self-imposed poverty of our Savior. Check this out. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that being rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. For your sake, he became poor. Paul uses a different word than this present participle. He never became rich. He was eternally rich and is eternally rich, but he became what he was not. He became poor. He humbled himself and became poor. And you say, well, is that even possible? Oh, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that it's possible. This infinitely rich one being born to a lowly maiden and her husband. Not even a place for them in the end. No place for them. Being born among animals. It's not a cute manger scene as we see in so many front yards right now. Son of God welcomed into this world by animals. He became poor. He became poor. Sam Storms writes, He was conceived by the union of divine grace and human disgrace. He who breathed The breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings now sleeping in a cow pen. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. God sucking his thumb. The alpha and omega learning his multiplication tables. He who was once surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildering shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being, crying. Omniscient deity, counting his toes. From the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling clothes. The omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxies confined confined to the womb of a peasant girl. Infinite power learning to crawl. For your sake, he became poor. He became poor. This is where the gospel impacts us. This is where the gospel ravishes the heart and levels the heart and humbles the heart and takes us off our high horse and brings us like little children to the Lord Jesus Christ, that this infinitely rich one would become poor. For our sake, it says, for you, for you who could add no value to him. You could not enrich him in any way. Yet for your sake, he became poor. Now, who is he talking about here? This is critical. For you, he became poor. Because the you here is also the same group that becomes enriched in the last section of the verse. 
For his people, he became poor that he might elevate them and enrich them with every conceivable spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Being rich, he became poor. This is wonderful truth here. This is the eternal one, rich in his eternality, becoming poor and confined to the limits of time and space. This is the rich one in terms of his being the radiance of God's glory, now having in his poverty that glory concealed with rags of flesh, garments made by man. This calls for us to look at Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, Philippians chapter 2. Here we have a classic text on this rich one becoming poor, this glorious one humbling himself for the sake of his people. Verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2 begins like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to for advantage. But, verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This rich one, rich in unfathomable, unlimited power, becoming poor to the point where the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power needs the help of another human being to carry his cross up to Golgotha. The one richly upholding the universe by his own word in his poverty, being held up by three nails. The one who is rich in terms of his holiness, unlike any other, is now, as Psalm 22 says, reduced to nothing but a worm. I am a worm, he says, and not a man. The one who is rich in terms of his immutability, never-changingness now becomes a growing infant progressing from sitting, laying, to rolling, crawling. The infinite one who is rich in his omniscience knows everything that can be known because he is the source of all truth and knowledge all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge residing in him, and yet him becoming poor, and that he had to learn how 
to speak and how to count. You read about in the Gospels Jesus increasing in knowledge as he grew up as a child. Growing in stature, growing in knowledge, growing in favor with God and with man. Rich in terms of his self-existence now depending upon the nutrients of his mother's breast. Rich in his omnipotence. Learning how to crawl. Rich in his omnipresence. Filling heaven and the highest heaven, as Solomon said. Becoming poor and confined to an infant's body. The righteousness by which he is rich in himself now in his poverty becomes sin itself. The sovereign one who is the head of all rule and authority now arrested by godless men subject to the authority of fallen governments. The one who is truth itself is now accused of blaspheming, blaspheming and being a deceiver. Rich in his titles, now becoming poor. The mockery of men becoming the scorn of mankind. For your sake, he became poor. As Augustine said, it's on the front of your bulletin, the maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, the teacher, might be scourged with whips, that he, the vine, might be crowned with thorns, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that he, being strength, might be weakened, that he who makes well might be wounded, that life might die. Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, theologian, said the incarnation of Christ it's a golden chain made up of several links of miracles. For instance, that the creator of heaven should become a creature, that eternity should be born, that he whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain should be enclosed in the womb, that he who thunders in the clouds should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breasts, that he who upholds all things by the word of his power should himself be upheld, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which himself made. That the creature should give a being to the creator. That the star should give light to the sun. That the branch should bear the vine. That the mother should be younger than the child she bare. That the child in the womb, that the child in the womb bigger than the mother that he who was a spirit should be made flesh, that Christ should be without father and without mother, yet have both. 
without mother in the Godhead, without father in the manhood. That Christ, being incarnate, should have two natures, the divine and human, and yet but one person. That the divine nature should not be infused into the human, nor the human mixed with the divine, yet assumed into the person of the Son of God. The human nature not God, yet one with God. Here is, I say, a chain of miracles. For your sake he became poor. And even when he died, it wasn't a noble death. The God of the universe came to die, not a noble, honorable death. But he came, as Philippians chapter 2 says, to die a shameful death, even death on a cross, which is the epitome of human depravity in terms of its design. No wonder so many theologians throughout the history of the church have called this incarnation the miracle of all miracles. God made low to raise us up. Well, finally, we move on to the fourth and final aspect of our Savior's glory this morning, to the very end of the verse where we consider the gracious purpose of our Savior the gracious purpose of our Savior. This answers the question, why? Why one so infinitely, unfathomably, indescribably rich, becoming poor? Here's the answer. Notice the very last phrase. So that you, purpose clause, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, what this is indicating to us is that we, by nature, are not rich as God defines richness. Again, if richness is defined as having possessions, having resources, what really, at the end of the day, do we have that is our own? The breath we have is not our own. The money we have is not our own. We're stewards. A steward doesn't own the money. A steward simply takes care of the money. The finances, riches you have are not yours. You will give an account for how you use them on this earth. Have you ever read the parable of the talents? You will give an account to everything regarding everything you have. It's his. The life you have is his. The breath you have is his. The heartbeat that is in you, is, is, is brought about by him. The house you have, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from above, we are taught. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Everything is his. So by nature, we are not rich as God defines richness. And even those who are rich, the qualifier in the Bible is added to those who are rich. It says those who are rich in this world. It doesn't say they're just simply rich. They're rich in this world, which is another way of saying they're just temporarily rich. But it's not even their riches. It's not their richness. They're rich in this world. Everything belongs to God. The only thing we have that we can own as ours and not God's is our sin, our wickedness, our depravity, our transgression, our iniquity, our filth, our vileness, our shame, that is ours. But 
that does not make us rich. Not only does it make us poor, it makes us debtors. Debtors to God's justice. Debtors to his wrath. What we truly own is our sin. But notice the purpose, the gracious purpose of our Savior here. Why did he, the rich one, become poor? Why the self-imposed poverty? Why was he the one who clothes the lilies of the field, stripped to die naked on a cross, humbled. Why? It says, so that you, by his poverty, as a result of his poverty, as a result of him being humbled, as a result of him being stripped, as a result of him being made low, might become rich. Paul the Apostle can say now that we in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Consider all that we now possess. Again, let's go back to the definition. What is richness? Having great possessions, resources, an abundance of possessions. We go from having nothing, not only having nothing, but being in debt, to now possessing what Paul says all things. All things are yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. Everything is yours in Christ. The meek will inherit the earth. The earth is yours, believer. You have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith. Think of what you have now. This should fuel the flames of your worship. You go from not just having nothing, but being in the negative, being in debt, to now possessing fellowship with the living God, possessing Christ as your high priest, possessing him as the Lamb of God who has taken away all of your sin. You go from having nothing and being a debtor to now having the spirit of the living God as the one who is your comforter and encourager and strong protector and guide in this world. You have an inheritance that's waiting for you. And just to make sure that you have the confidence and certainty that you will one day lay hold of that inheritance, God gave you his spirit as a guarantee of that inheritance. It's a guarantee that you will one day lay hold of it. You have, and you know now, the riches of God's grace, the riches of his forgiveness, the riches of redemption, the riches of reconciliation, the richness of being an adopted son or daughter of the living God, full access to God. Who has that but the Christian? You have been given these extraordinary possessions by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this rich one becoming poor so that you might have God. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He died in order to bring us to God. Everything's yours now. The angels are for you now. You realize that? They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him to deliver him. They are your angels to serve you. They are your servants now in Christ. 
Everything is yours now, believer. You are rich. Do you realize that? This ought to fuel not only your worship, but all of your obedience. Everything God calls you to do. You see, this is where Paul ties it in. Paul's not just giving a random exposition of the glory of the incarnation out of nowhere. He is saying, Corinthians, complete what you started out to complete. Let's relieve the saints in Jerusalem. Give generously because of what has been generously bestowed upon you. And that principle goes beyond just generosity and relieving the needs of saints. That stretches across everything you're called to do and everything you're called to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why seek him in prayer? Why chop off a right hand and pluck out an eye that's causing you to lust? Why? Because for your sake he became poor so that you might become infinitely, indescribably, unfathomably rich in him. You see, Jesus on this earth talked about those who are not rich towards God. They're rich in this world, but they're not rich toward God. Now in Christ, we are rich toward God. We were once storing up wrath for the day of wrath, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. But now in Christ, we are storing up riches in heaven. So not only are we rich now, but we are storing up riches. It's as though we're becoming richer in him. And one day we will lay hold of all that richness. But in the end, none of those riches compares to the worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to end with this. As he is rich internally and relationally and externally, so too the believer in him is rich internally. What do we have within us? We have the spirit of the living God. We have renewed minds. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. We have gifts that he's bestowed so that we can elevate him and exalt him in this earth. We have those gifts now in ourselves. We have the peace of God within us that surpasses all understanding. But we're not just rich internally. We are also rich externally. All the things that are ours that I spoke of, life and death, the new Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth are now ours in him. We have the possessions of forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption, redemption. But we are also rich, like him, relationally. We now have been given access to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We now not only know him, but as Paul the Apostle says in his letter to the Galatians, we are now known by God. It's not just enough for us to say we know him if he doesn't own us. I think it's Paul Washer who gives the illustration that if he were to go outside and outside of the White House and say, I know the president, he'd be ignored and laughed at. But if the president stepped outside and said, I know that man, let him in, it's a whole different story. 
And we are now rich relationally because we not only know God and claim to know God, but he, according to the Bible, is not ashamed to call us his sons and his daughters. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He knows us and we know him and we are rich. And let that richness dictate everything you are and everything you do. As you get up in the morning to read the scriptures and pray, realize that you already have everything you need in him. There's nothing you can lose. Give and give and give. And I'm not just talking financially. I'm talking about your life. When Paul talked about his giving, he said, I wasn't just giving you the gospel. I gave you my very life. When you, when you go forth this week to tell people the gospel, you're not doing it from the standpoint of a beggar. You're doing it as someone who is infinitely rich and has nothing to lose. And if they reject you, guess what you still have? You are still infinitely rich internally, externally, and relationally. And that will never be taken away from you. So go forth, tell someone the good news. Go tell it on the mountain. Jesus Christ is born. Jesus Christ has lived. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has risen from death. He has triumphed over the grave. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again. He's going to make all things new. And we're going to lay hold of all of our richness in Him. Let's pray.